It's time to go inside the command post. Here are your hosts, Rom Duckworth and Rob Wiley. Thanks again for joining us at the Command Post, the official podcast of Fire Chief and FireRescue1.com, where we bring you what's in the news, the hot topics, the tactical tips, and the leadership lessons that you need to know. We're your co-hosts. I am Lieutenant Ram Duckworth. And I'm Chief Rob Wiley. Thanks for listening with us today in our hot topics in the news. Uh, another chief uh, on the blocks. Um, we have a chief in San Francisco. Her leadership is being called into question, and there's been calls for her resignation. Yeah, a letter followed a meeting at the Firefighters Union Hall calling for completely new management in the department. And what they mean is a replacement of Fire Chief uh, Joanne Hayes-White. And she's been with the department for quite some time. Uh, she was just uh, 39 when she made chief, uh, and she's now eligible for retirement, but she says that she's not going to go. And uh, it seems like the, the, what is specifically being called into question in this letter is the large number of incidents where it took quite a bit of time for the uh, ambulances to arrive at calls. And the, so you got uh, first responding fire engines on the scene of these EMS calls waiting more than 20 minutes, sometimes more than an hour for an ambulance to be freed up. And uh, a lot of this is related to policies related to um, understaffing of the department, um, not enough ambulances being on duty. And uh, there are a number of other complaints that are associated with it, but it's really sounds like it's a chief who had responded or was responding to the budgetary issues within the city and making some difficult choices. And now those choices are having repercussions and the firefighters are tired of being the ones who are bearing the brunt of that because they got the boots on the ground. They're the ones trying to explain to somebody on scene why they've been there uh, and they can't take somebody to the uh, to the hospital in a fire engine, and they've been waiting for more than an hour. It's, um, you know, I, I don't like being in that position where I got to wait five minutes and explain to somebody why we're still waiting for an ambulance from our own department. Uh, I can't imagine sitting there in a city the size of San Francisco waiting for more than an hour. Yeah, it seems kind of crazy on the surface. And, you know, heavy's the head that wears the crown, and right, wrong, or indifferent, when things like this happen, it comes back to the chief's office. And, you know, then as, as a chief officer, you've, you've got uh, a choice. You can respond respond to these con these concerns and try to make positive changes or you can put your head down and say nope I'm doing it the way I'm doing it uh, you know that that's a decision every individual chief has to make uh, it, it seems to me you think about it the more we look at these larger departments these large muni departments uh, it, it seems more pre prevalent um, I, I'm out in DC right now and the DC uh, chief as we know, has been changed several times. And the D.C. police chief is now under fire out in this area. And it seems when you get into these large organizations, it becomes very easy to be decentralized. It becomes very difficult for the chief to have that good communication with the troops and to get out there and, and to be able to have that face time where you can answer questions and make yourself understood better. When you get a department this size, uh, as, as big as San Francisco is, a lot of times it comes down to managing by memo, which I hate. But it's just a, a fact of life. You can't get out and see every single person every single day and get that face-to-face -face communication and get that two-way communication going. And I think when you've got a department that large, it becomes very simple to blame problems, to go after this you know, disembodied head that you've had a few memos from but never gotten the opportunity to meet and blame them for problems. Uh, whether it's their actual problem or not, you're the chief of the department, so it's your problem. So it's a difficult situation, especially in large organizations. And I, I don't have a really good answer to say, hey, you should do this. But I think communication is always the key. 
And when there's a lack of communication, especially a lack of face-to-face communication, it makes it very easy to throw blame on that person. And I think that's a lot of what happened here. Yeah, when you're talking communication, you're not just talking about radios. Uh, The specifics that I'm looking at here are that uh, the union and their spokespeople say, you know, we want a five-year plan. They want something specific that is going to say how the department and the chief are going to address these understaffing issues as well as aging apparatus and a lot of uh, ancillary issues that are all still connected to this, hey, we can't get ambulances where they need to be. And the chief is issuing statements saying, yeah, I want the public to know that we are going to have firefighters and paramedics on the scene within minutes of an emergency. Ambulance transport is going to be available, but the specifics aren't coming out. And that's another part of that communication. It's not just a channel that you're going to be using face-to-face memos, press releases, uh, whatever, but also the, you know, the content. It, it's got to be specific. She may have the greatest plan in the world for how she's going to resolve this, but if the public isn't seeing it, if the firefighters aren't seeing it, they don't have to know every detail, um, but there has to be a level above, hey, trust me, we're going to fix this thing, even if she actually does have a fantastic plan that's going to fix it. And I hope they do, but um, it just has to be. I, I agree with you, but I think I, I think I take it one step further and say that you, you can't tell me that, that this chief thinks it's a great idea that somebody has to wait an hour for an ambulance. There's no way in hell she thinks that's a good idea. But she has, she has uh, physical constraints, et cetera, operational constraints. What I would say is I think they need to sit down together in a room you know, lock themselves in a room and come up with a solution, a joint solution that not only addresses the fiscal constraints that the department has and the operational constraints, but also has the guys that are down there to boots on the ground that are out there as part of the solution and say, here's what we think and come up with a plan. And you can't, you cannot do things like this in a vacuum. As a chief officer, you can't just sit back in your office and come up with policies and plans. You've got to include the people that are going to have to be affected by those and carry those plans out. They've got to be at the table. They've got to be part of that solution. Otherwise, they're not going to buy it. You can come up with the greatest plan in the world, but if you've given nobody any input, any buy-in, and and I hope in San Francisco, I know they have a great union out there, a very active union, and I hope that they've been invited in. I've got to be convinced that they have been to be part of the solution for this plan. And maybe this is a, a, a outgrowth of frustration that they haven't been able to come up with anything or if they're at loggerheads. I don't know. I'm not there. But it, it, you've got to have everybody in the room. Everybody's got to be part of that solution if you want it to work. Everybody doesn't have to get everything that they want, but they have to be part of the conversation. Otherwise, you can't just be issuing direct orders. I mean, you, you can, and you'll get some level of compliance, but to correct an issue of this size you got to have people in and on board, at least the vast majority of them. And as you say, that's just not going to happen if they didn't have any contribution to developing the solution that you're putting out there. Right. And if you're not getting something you want, if you're at the table, you have a really good understanding of why you didn't get it versus just a memo that says no. If you're in the room, you understand the 360 of this issue and you know why it didn't go your way. You may not agree with it. But you understand it. And I think that's, geez, that's 60% of the battle right there is understanding and seeing every side of an issue. So, Chief, for today's frontline tactical tips, I wanted to talk about a particular aspect of extrication. And I think it's one of the most important, was really the most important aspect of it because it's the first one that we have to deal with with any extrication, big or small. And that's simple steps to secure the vehicle. And here I'm talking to, uh, specifically about the vehicle's electrical system. And the seven steps that I see it fit in 
with stabilization overall. We got to check 720 degrees around the vehicle. Now, some people talk about the, in, the outside circle and the inside circle. I think of it as checking 720 because you got to check 360 degrees around the vehicle for hazards like wires and that kind of thing. But the 720 reminds me as an officer that I got to check above and below the vehicle. Is somebody trapped underneath? Did something get run over? Is there another safety hazard underneath? And then start to work on mitigating those hazards. So checking 720 around a vehicle is number one. Number two is stabilizing the suspension and setting the brake. Stabilizing the suspension, talking about your blocks and chocks, um, but remembering to set the brake. Uh, step three is, once it's stabilized, making an initial patient contact. Any kind of extrication or motor vehicle uh, accident, whatever your level of EMS, man, it's all about rescue, and you can't have rescue if you're not making contact with a patient. And step four is anything that's powered inside the vehicle. Your next step is the power doors, power seats, power windows. After you've made contact with your patient, adjust things so that they are where you need them to be to facilitate caring for the patient, getting the patient out, whatever you need. Um, number five is one that's a little bit controversial and I've had people talk about, but you got to kill the ignition. Make sure it's done every single time. And noticing that that hasn't been done on a couple of calls that I've been on, that people assume the ignition was shut off and then watching vehicles start to take off on me is what led me to, uh, to lock down these seven steps as an officer. Kill the ignition and remove the key. A lot of vehicles nowadays don't have keys. Just bring the key a little bit away. And that's all we really got to worry about. Kill the ignition, remove the key. Because everything else that we do with the vehicle, whether it's a hybrid or an electrical vehicle, man, it all operates off the 12-volt system. Once you've killed that ignition, you've taken care of most of the problems. And uh, a friend of mine, good friend of mine, tipped me off to two final things to, uh, to keep an eye on. Number six is headlights off, hazards on. Headlights off because some of those high-intensity, those HID lights, man, they're like uh, arc welders, basically, on the front of the car. So you want to turn them off because there's a big electrocution hazard if the plastic is broken off in the front of the car. And you turn the hazards on, and that way we know when we're successful with the seventh and final step, which is where we disconnect the main battery, the 12-volt battery. Now, some uh, people and places have procedures where uh, they also do a high-voltage disconnect or start pulling fuses. That's part of your policy, too. That's fine. Um, sometimes under certain conditions that is required, but most of the time, that final step, you disconnect the battery, the 12-volt battery. It shuts down all the safeties on everything else, and your problems in a short order go away, and they allow you to get in there and go to work. So, Chief, I know you've done a bunch of training on basic stabilization. It's something we come back to uh, again and again and again. Um, is there anything that you think we're missing? Is there anything you think that people need to really keep in mind that's a specific part of those seven steps? I think the big thing that people forget about is stabilizing a vehicle that's sitting straight up on all four wheels. It's easy to remember to have to stabilize a vehicle that's on its top or on its side and kind of in a precarious situation. But a vehicle that's sitting on all four tires needs to be stabilized as well. The way the, sta the uh, suspensions are built in the cars to give it a comfortable ride are the same thing that can injure your patient or rescuer if you don't take care of them. If you've got a person with a compromised C-spine and you go jumping into the car with them and it's not been stabilized to the, the frame of the car, that movement of the car could seriously injure your patient. So really one of the first thing it has to do is you need to drop that car down onto the frame rails. And that means sticking in a step chalk or building a little cribbing box, whatever it is, let the air out of the tire. We always carry little tire stem tools where you can just pop that stem out, boom, the tire goes down. You haven't damaged the tire, so they can blow it right back up if it's good and they're going to reuse it. 
But you get that frame right down on top of that cribbing so that the car is solid and is not going to rock around while you're doing your other extrication activities that may compromise the, the uh, safety and health of not only the patient but other rescuers. You don't want that thing bobbling back and forth while somebody's going at it with a pair of cutters or spreaders. The other thing to remember is make sure it's not going to roll. First and foremost, I always throw something, a piece of cribbing, something down by the tire while I'm doing the rest of my stuff because you don't really know what condition that car's in. They may have left it in gear. It might be in neutral. Don't know. And having a car lurch forward at you or roll back on you is a scary, scary thing. So making sure that thing is square down on the frame rails is a, is a good thing for everybody's health and safety. I take a look at extrication, and I see two truths that apply to this like they apply to every level of technical rescue. And number one is that everybody's got their own exact way of doing things. And if you like to mix and match some of these things, some are timeless, the, the old timeless tactical truths. Like you say, I, I think you need to get in there, and even if the car's on four wheels, I couldn't agree more. we got to be part of uh, stabilizing the suspension. Um, but that's the second truth of every aspect of technical rescue is the basics like that need to get done on every call so it can be done without thought. Because when you can get the basics down on every single call, even when you think to yourself, eh, maybe they aren't necessary this time around, it puts you in the perfect position for when you get that really bad call the basics just get done without you thinking about them, and it lets you focus all of your technical skill on the complexity of that bigger incident without thinking, okay, it's the big one, so let's start with uh, stabilizing the vehicle and, and chocking the wheels and you know whatever else you need to. Man, that should just happen without thought, and you should really just focus on the specifics of that, that real big, complex uh, extrication when it does roll around. Yeah, and as a company officer, you're kind of like the quarterback on a football team. When I was a company officer, we're rolling up to a wreck. I like to be given instructions as we pull up. You know, I tell my jump man, all right, you're the stabilization guy. So you go grab the wheel chocks, you get that thing locked down. And when I say stabilize the vehicle, I don't have to tell him in detail, put a block here, put a block there, pull the stems. He knows what I mean because we've trained that way. So you're the stabilized guy. So he knows he's supposed to drop that thing down onto the frame rails. The other guy, hey, you're, give me a hazard sweep. So he knows to do that 720. I love that term, the 720. Looking above, below, left, right, front, back, looking for hazards that not only could hurt the patient, but are going to hurt us. And then my job as the incident commander is to get an overall size up and put together a game plan. So if you look at it from that standpoint and you're the quarterback going in as the company officer, everybody knows their job. Everybody does their task. doesn't matter if it's the worst wreck you ever ran or a simple rear ender. You do things the same way, you're going to do them right and remember to get them done. Chief, in today's leadership lessons, uh, I am very interested about <laughs> preparing for promotions. And I know that it's something that we've talked about on the show both together and uh, with some other guest interviews. But as I'm going through the steps to hopefully move from a company officer up to a shift commander level, I'm looking at different complaints about the promotional process, different opinions about the way to prepare, and something that I'm thinking a lot more and more about as I'm moving through it is people seem to get really focused and uptight on the what other people are doing and how they're going to rank versus somebody else specifically. And I take kind of a different approach myself. I'm really looking at it as, well, this is a chance for me to set aside some of the other things that I would do in my day-to-day -day operations, not the critical stuff, but it allows me to go, hey, you know what? I got to focus on some of the essentials and some of the basics, maybe catch up on some of the stuff that the kids today are being taught in the academy that I didn't learn when I went through, and, um, and really look to develop myself into 
the, the person who's going to be the best fit for the position that I'm applying to. Um, but I wonder, am I missing something that everybody else is looking at? Who's ranking as who and what they have to do to defeat somebody else's expertise? And uh, I'm just not looking at it that way. What am I missing? It's, you know, I don't think you're missing anything. It's, it's, I guess it's human nature to want to categorize everything and list and rank everything. And it's a product of, of the fire service. We, we've all, we always try, uh, much to my chagrin, to make everything very sterile and objective. And we do that through standardized testing, through interview processes where we ask every candidate the exact same question with the exact same phrasing and, and grade their answer on a one to 10 scale. You know, a lot of that comes from, you know, let's face it, there's been a lot of really unfair promotional practices in this country over the years. And people get promoted because they're somebody's buddy or, or what have you. And that's what's kind of put us in this situation where everybody's tried to sterilize and objectify the promotional process where it comes down to numbers and numbers. And, and I think I think we're really missing the boat. Um, first and foremost, you got to have a good relationship with your workforce. You know, if you're a union department, you and your union should have a really good understanding of what you're trying to achieve by promotion. Not just, hey, we got to pick somebody, but who do we want to promote? What kind of person do we want to promote? Uh, do they buy into our culture? Do we have a good culture developed here that we want to perpetuate? And you find the best fit for the job. The, the, the real answer is you start preparing for promotion the day you decide you want to get promoted. Because... Everything you do every day is going to reflect on you. And, and I, I've seen it, and I'm sure everybody else has seen it. When the promotional announcement goes up, you get all these requests in the training division. Hey, I want to go to this. I want to go to that. I got to go to this. Because, you know, they've spent the last five or seven years prior to that doing nothing. And then they try to cram it all in the three months prior to the promotional process starting. Uh, to me, that's a red herring. That's a guy I go, yeah, okay. But the guy who's steadily been clicking him off as he goes all the time, looking to progress, looking to uh, make himself invaluable to the department, the guy that's really buying into what's going on in your organization, that's the guy I want in that position. And I'm very fortunate with, the, with our labor group. We agree on what we want these things to look like, and we work together on the process. And I am proud to say that the last promotional process we did really had nothing to do with standardized testing. Standardized testing got you, it was like your ticket to the next phase. You know, we had we have two positions and we have 30 guys putting in for them. We got to got to separate them a little bit somehow, but it was a pass-fail test. So if you pass it, you move to the next section. You pass that, you move to the next section. But ultimately, it's an interview where we have good representation from labor and management, and we talk to the guy, and we understand the guy, and we want to understand what his goals are, what his aspirations are. What's he buying into? What's he just kind of, you know, putting his party manners on for the interview? And we come to a joint decision on who would be the best person for the job. But that's a long-winded answer to your question. You're not missing anything because I know that you've prepared yourself in your career. You've always taken every ed educational opportunity. You've taken leadership opportunities. And those are the guys that I look at as the people that I want in those spots, not the people that just saw the notice go up and then decided they better get on the stick but the people that have every day come to work and proven themselves to be worthy of, of leadership positions. 
I have to say that I really value the conversations that we have and the opportunity to talk on this podcast, and I hope that our listeners see the same benefit that I have. This is the kind of thing where I'm thinking about, I'm keeping up with what's in the news and how it relates to me and my department. I'm thinking about these things, not just learning things that might be the answer to a multiple choice question on a written exam, but the kind of thing that's going to be reflected in these interview questions that you're talking about. And I I see some of the people around me, some people who, like you say, are always out there thinking about this kind of stuff and, and trying to keep up with it, they've got a good shot. They got a good, everybody's got their different pluses and minuses, but they've been thinking about it every day they come to work. The guys who are just coming in to punch a ticket and collect a paycheck, it becomes very obvious very quickly that they're just not aware of issues that are going on in the fire service and how they might bring new ideas into their department, uh, how they're going to be able to solve problems in their department in in real ways and deal with the people uh, and the personalities in their own department. And uh, we actually, uh, I've been in kind of an awkward position or a funny position because at the same time that I'm preparing for my own promotional process, I've also been interviewing people and have been part of the deciding process for people moving in to other positions in our department. And you always get complaints about the promotional process and this isn't fair and somebody else is a a quote unquote good test taker or whatever. So I came up with this and I want to know what your opinion is. Instead of having everybody schedule the interviews and the exams and they dress up in their class A's and they walk in and they have the eye contact and the firm handshake and the shiny shoes and everything you're supposed to, We actually do the interviews um, within three days of putting the promotional process up. You get everybody up at 4 a.m., you grab them out of their bunks, you march them down, and you say, okay, just like you had a call at 4 a.m., this is what you've got, now go. And I feel like that's the kind of thing where if somebody... And we want to see how people really act to, uh, to other members of the public at 4 a.m. Because I know plenty of people who can shine the hell out of their shoes for a game day. But if you actually got them up at 4 a.m., they would be so bitchy that I feel like everybody should really see their true colors. <laughs> I, I think that's a great idea. I think I'd get throat punched, but I, I think it'd be pretty cool. Uh, <laughs> the 4 a.m. interview process. You know, and, and part of see it. Yeah, I, I got one word for you, Rami. Grievance, but <laughs> but we 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 do what we do though is it's not quite to that extent. But what we've done now, as far as the practical elements of the interview and the promotional process is, we set up like for a company officer, captain, lieutenant, spike type spot. We set up down at the training center um, a scenario form. We don't tell them what it is, um, and they they draw one of three numbers out of a hat, so we know which scenario they're going to get, so they don't all go back and say, "Hey, it's this." But they come in with a crew. We got a crew there to work with them, and they're their crew. And they come in, and they, they basically run a call, and we watch them. We don't say anything to them. We got evaluators that watch them. One of the guys that's one of the crew members is an evaluator, so he can uh, evaluate the communication from that guy as the company officer. And we, and we kind of grade them, and it's based on our SOGs and, and did they follow the, the things they're supposed to do? Did they good, good, use good tactics? Uh, were they good communicators? So these guys are reacting to an incident. We want to see how they react. And the only way to really prepare for that is to have a good understanding of your department's SOGs, pay attention when you're out on calls to the things that are important, your priorities, your action plans. Those are the types of things that we look at. And it's not just a written test or you know a bunch of matchbox cars on a tabletop thing. 
Uh, we, you're reacting. There's smoke coming out of the building. There might be a victim hanging out of a window. We want to see what you're going to do. And you're under that time pressure, so there's a little bit of a squeeze to it because it's happening in real time. And it's, it's given us a really good look at our folks. And I think overall, our folks have really appreciated that, and they like it better than um, just a, a test or a tabletop. Well, I appreciate your insight, Chief. Well, thanks again for listening to us here at the Command Post. I'm Rom Duckworth. You can find me, as always, on Twitter at Rom Duck, R-O-M-D-U-C-K, and at RescueDigest.com. Thanks for listening. We hope you like what you hear. We hope you find it as useful as we take away these conversations. And remember, you can always find us at FireChief.com or at FireRescue1.com. And if you want it directly, uh, the podcast straight to your iPod, iPhone, or whatever you have, you can always subscribe to us on iTunes. And I'm Chief Rob Wiley. We appreciate you taking your time to be with us today. And as Rami said, we want to hear from you. You can reach out to me on Twitter at at CFD8700 or on Facebook at Chief Rob Wiley. Or you can drop us an email at the show at firerescue1.com. Let us know if there's something you'd like us to discuss, a topic that you have in mind, a question you have, whatever it might be, we would love to hear from you. And along those lines, Chief, I want to give a shout-out to John Spiegelberg, and uh, we appreciate you writing into us at the show, and we wish you the best of luck, and stay safe out there in Frederick, Maryland. Absolutely. Good luck. We'll catch you next time around. Remember, as always, here on the Command Post, we do this so that everyone goes home. Be safe.